Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. He published a book back in 2019. Title of that book, and it's very timely. We're talking the pre-show. This, the themes, and the references, and the read the very lengthy research he did on this book. I think is very important. So I think that this is going to be an important interview. Title of the book again is "Soldiers, Blood, and Bloodied Money: Wars and the Ruling Elites." And the author is the Honorable Alan. B. Clark, and he comes to us from Texas. I read the whole, entirety of the book. Highly recommend it. He's also published other books. Uh, one in 2012 was Valor in Vietnam, Chronicles of Honor, Courage, and Sacrifice, 1963 to 1977. And then in 2007, Wounded Soldier, Healing Warrior, a personal story of a Vietnam veteran who lost his legs but found his soul. And all his books have a pretty, very solid, like 4.9, five-star ratings on Amazon in America. His website is his full name, www.allenbclark.com. I'll put links to his many different websites. I think he's got five on the show, show notes. And the one for this book is soldiers, soldiersblood.com. I've also done other interviews about Vietnam, so people can check those out in my catalog if they want. I'll try to put links to those. Those One was Lieutenant Dangerous. The Vietnam War Memorial with Jeff Danziger, and then the other was William V. Taylor, and his book was on full automatic surviving 13 months in Vietnam. But uh, really a, a incredible book, really interesting. A lot of different themes in this book, and people who listen to my show will be very familiar with a lot of this, the citations and, and references that he has, people such as Smedley Clark, uh, Smedley Butler, sorry, sorry, John Coleman, Carol Quigley, Anthony Sutton, it's all in here, but... Uh, Alan B. Clark can talk more about that. So, Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. What a delight to be with you today. Thank you. Excellent. So for people who may not have heard your name or your background, you have a very long bio and a very fascinating backstory. Can you kind of talk about yourself and what led you up to putting together this book, Soldier's Blood? Yes. Well, I'm an Army brat, decided at age eight with tunnel vision. I had a goal in my life that was become a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point. I, I was a Army patch collector, as most Army brats are, and I took a patch I didn't recognize one day to my father. I was living in Japan at the time. And he was in the Army of Occupation, and we were, you know, his family uh, living there in Sendai, Japan, and Fukushima, which, you know, had that uh, tsunami thing in 2011. Uh, anyway, I asked him what the patch was. He said, Al, uh, son, that's the United States Military Academy, West Point, north of New York. And they train you to be professional officers there. He pointed out different officers on the post that I thought were pretty sharp guys. And so I had tunnel vision. I mean, I kept myself straight. I studied hard. I prepared myself. And I, I uh, had an incredible experience relative to getting into the military academy. I am a high school dropout. Uh, for ninth and 10th grade, I went to a Jesuit high school, as I mentioned in my book. Uh, my Jesuit headmaster in 10th grade told my dad that was about to go overseas, you better get Alan in a prep school, boarding school back in the United States before you go overseas, because he could be in a really small um, military base high school overseas. And so uh, dad took him up on that. I began to apply to prep schools. I applied to Phillips Anzover, Phillips Exeter, Kent School and Sewanee, got admitted to all four. And uh, we decided I'd go to Phillips Exeter Academy, Exeter, New Hampshire, uh, founded in uh, 1783. So I'm there for one year. Uh, at the Jesuit High School I went to, William, it was about six blocks north of the Capitol building on North Capitol Street. I'd go down there with my grades once a month, which we got. And I'd go into the congressional offices, the Senate offices. I pounded those halls. I said, look, I'm interested in the academy. I talked to their academy rep, you know, on the staff. And man, I really worked at worked the deal for uh, ninth and 10th grade. And then uh, 11th grade, I was up there, of course, but I'd laid the groundwork. And so my dad had uh, gotten um uh, legal residency in Arkansas. So I had the two senators there, the congressman in the Little Rock area. My mother was from the lower Rio Grande Valley. My mother's Hispanic, Amalia de la Fuente. And so she had, she knew the congressman from that area, plus two Texas senators. I had six potential nomination opportunities. Christmas Eve, junior year in high school, congressman from dad's office calls me, William. He says, Alan, I have a principal nomination for you for West Point. And I said, sir, 
I don't need it till next year. He says, I am a lame duck congressman. He'd been, he lost in the Democratic primary in summer of 1958, Little Rock with that big mess. And he says, uh, why don't you accept my nomination and uh, I'm going out of office in 10 days and then decide if you get admitted, fine. Decide where you're going to go after 11th grade. If you don't get admitted, you got the practice. It made sense. I get admitted to the academy. I enter the academy William, as the youngest graduate of my class of about 735 that entered, and we graduated 504. So I was still obviously the youngest man in my class. I was 17 by 10 days or so when the uh, class of 1963 entered in 59. So I go to West Point. I have a, you know, I was on the debate team. That was the, the highlight of my time at the academy, being on the West Point debate team, became, become a Corps of Engineers officer at Fort Hood. Uh, my first wife uh, decided after a couple of years that she didn't like uh, olive drab uniforms and she'd prefer uh, some of the colors of Southern Methodist University where she went. And I'm obviously joking, red, red and uh, blue. So I just preserved my marriage. I said, okay, I will resign my commission. And, um, but I knew that if I resigned my commission, I would be doing a disservice to myself and my country because I had taken that oath of office as an officer and I would always feel guilty. So I, I knew if I resigned, uh, I had a chance not to go to Nam because I was going to be an aide de camp in Korea. So I volunteered for Vietnam secretly, caused a real major spiritual problem, took 25 years to work through, her to forgive me. So I go to Vietnam as a prisoner of war interrogator. I transferred to military intelligence. In country, I transferred to special forces, the Green Berets. I had a very, very interesting job for nine and a half months there. I debriefed a, um, probably a defector, a double agent from communism, a Cambodian officer. I lived in safe houses for three months with Cambodian anti-communists that I dropped on the border um, in South Vietnam to go into Viet into Cambodia, which was a neutral country, and then. I uh, was at a forward operating base for special forces where I came under mortar attack 1967 and I lost my left leg dramatically, but lived by the grace of God. My right leg lasted 10 days. They took it off. So I've been a double amputee since 1968, served on the governor's staff in Texas, was a political appointee, George H.W. Bush, been in private sector, remarried 19 years ago to an incredible woman whose father was a World War II vet, married to another West Pointer that uh, died. And so uh, that's kind of my life. I took a lot of time. I hope it helps the audience understand, but I have studied history and i have really gotten with the program relative to understanding the connection between who makes money off our wars and i've studied four specific uh, periods of war in in this book and uh what are are what are the effects of us who go to those wars while they make money international bankers make money and we suffer bleed and die and it, it has been a passion in my life for us to ask that question every time is this in the national interest of the united states for us to lose americans and go through all the trauma that we and our families go through in death and ptsd which i had i was in a closed psychiatric ward for 14 weeks william and by the grace of god 1968, when I got out, I took pills for a few years. Ten years later, I was 10 feet from the governor's governor's office of the state of Texas, 10 years after being in a closed psychiatric ward, by the grace of God. That's how he healed me. That's how he sustained me. That's how he strengthened me to get away from PTSD by my faith and be able to, to be, be that close to the governor of Texas. My office right across from his office. Wow, that's amazing. Good for you. I'm glad you made it through. Not a lot of people did. That's like the other casualty. It's not just a physical casualty. It's a spiritual, emotional casualties too, going through that. And Vietnam is a perfect example. It's like famously said that the people who fought that war were all the average age was 19, right? So it's these young kids who were sent off there and, and these Bell helicopter people and uh, LBJ somehow ends up, you know, dying and he has $250 million in his bank account, right? So, yes, well, um, I will point out about the post-traumatic stress, William. The fact is that in the Civil War, they called it the condition of the heart. 
in World War One, it was shell shock. In World War Two, you know, it was uh, different things, you know, nervous in the service, you know, joke, kind of obviously jokingly, because that's much more than that. And then it became uh, post-traumatic stress. Now, all of us uh, emotionally are, and also law enforcement, firefighters and people in distressful families that have abuse and so forth. It, we all can be uh, suffering post-traumatic stress. The issue is how we deal with it and whether or not it becomes a D added, which means it becomes a disorder because we got addicted to drugs, got addicted addicted to alcohol, got addict, addicted to sick, sex, could not manage our anger, and uh, could not uh, stay in a marriage healthily and be a good father or mother. So it's a real much broader issue, and it goes back historically, you know, as far as what, how combatants are affected by this. I have counseled, um, I shouldn't say counseled, I have mentored hundreds of veterans through the years in large gatherings and the major military bases, plus individually, plus with spouses, with girlfriends, with boyfriends, with parents, uh, as far as taking a spiritual approach to, to healing them from post-traumatic stress. Right. And you have that. That's one of the final couple the uh, last chapters in your book is addressing that issue, which is really still pre prevalent today. People coming back from Iraq and things like that. There's a lot of suffering going on. Uh, with some of those people as well. So they'd to be wise for them to read your book and, and uh, go through all that. And you kind of talk about your personal faith. That was kind of the one of the ways that you found healing. Can you kind of talk about that and how that, that change helped you kind of get past the PTSD? Yeah, no. yeah. you know, I, I think that one of the things that happens to us in, in the Christian faith is, quote, we go to church for years, decades for our life. And, you know, we, we go through the motions um, and, and there's a, a, a spectrum of um, worship experience in, in the Christian um, uh, experience around the world and in churches and so forth. Uh, I was a very um, active and devout kid, especially beginning about seventh or eighth grade in a church. And I mean, I was an acolyte, you know, and I was a um, youth group leader and I started a baseball team at my church. And, you know, I quote, said my prayers. I did not study the Bible. And in those early years, I had what was called a religion, but I did not have a relationship. Now, once I uh, got out of the hospital, I went to a an evangelical church and they began and the pastor one day began talking about the real eternal struggle of all time is not on these little uh, uh, level of warfare but it is a spiritual um, level of God versus evil good versus the devil and I was in a church one day and he brought that up and I it all of a sudden hit me. I'm looking at the flag of the United States of America in that church. And William, it was about 1972 or so, 73. I literally began to tear in the service because I looked at that flag and said, man, I gave my life to serve my country and die for that flag, which I almost did. And I have not given my allegiance and understanding and um, commitment to the Lord God who created everything. And so at that point in time, that was the beginning point when I got into a, a Bible study, a couple's Bible study with my first wife, and I began to study the Bible and I began to pray. And I had developed that relationship that Jesus Christ is real. He was real. He died on the cross for us. And that's where I began to expand my relationship and get with the program. And that doesn't mean that I haven't made any mistakes in my life. Boy, I have, but I've had to forgive myself for my stupids, you know, but the overriding approach and level of who I am and what I am and what I try to be, what I believe, what I try to reflect is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what matters. And he can heal everything. He healed me from sadness. He healed me from grief. He healed me, healed me from anger about why did God let this happen? Well, good gosh, I was a triple volunteer, man. West Point, um, Vietnam, Green Berets. <laughs> if I want to blame anybody, blame myself. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Right. So in uh, that kind of that's your kind of intro. And then you kind of use this, you know, you kind of go through you've done a significant amount of research, read a lot of books. Someone I'm some I'm familiar with, some not. I wasn't familiar with. But you use this term cupidity in Section two. Can you define what that is and how it applies to 
uh, Soldiers of War. Yes, let me um, let me turn to that page. Um, that it's, yeah, cupidity, it's kind of desire. Here. Yeah, it, cupidity. Yeah, cupidity is desire. You know, it's a certain kind of a desire, and um, in this case, a desire for something that you really shouldn't have. Um, it's it's not. It's not a normal type of desire. It's really fulfillment of selfishness and greed. And the specific definition that I had was um, an eager desire to possess something, an ardent wishing or longing, inordinate or un unlawful desire of wealth or power. And that's kind of the, the essence of um, what my, my thrust in my book about the elites is all about, uh, for them to make money at the expense of, of – and the ruling elites at the expense of us – the common people, um, you know, the people that have collateral damage in our wars, the, the families that lose their um, their sons or daughters in the war, you know, that's that's about that's the definition, and that's what it relates to. Right. And so, but you kind of bring up this this profiteering on war isn't merely just an American kind of a phenomenon. It's happened all the way back through time, right? So, oh yeah, yeah. You know. You go back, you go back to conflict, you know, go back to conflict pre coming of the Christ. You come go back to conflict and all the wars. Somebody profits. I mean, you know, the in, in modern day, the uniforms need to be paid for. The bullets need to be replenished. I mean, as an example, here we are, Ukraine. We send all this money millions of dollars to Ukraine. We send equipment. That equipment needs to be replaced. So there is a new inventory that needs to be bought and paid for with the defense contractors. Okay. So instead of spending that money on a lot of social needs in the United States, we're spending it on bullets and bombs and weaponry for Ukraine. Now that's a different issue, judgment of what Ukraine's all about. We could perhaps discuss that and get your opinions actually too. But uh, here we go. Inventory has to be built back up. So people make money off that. You know, we mentioned, uh, I'm written about General Smedley Butler. Man, that guy was some classic warrior as a Marine, you know? He, he had two medals of honor uh, and he, distinctly says in his book, you know, I was basically a, a gangster for the corporate interests, you know, and uh, he eventually just began to talk and write and, uh, and travel around and visit the troops that were in the hospitals after World War One, you know, uh, and working at a veterans hospital, William, for nine years. And I talked to them all. I, I talked to uh, children of you know, offspring of people that served in World War One and issues they had. I met people that were shot down over Germany, became prisoners in Germany, prisoners of the Bataan Death March, and uh, prisoners, uh, uh, you know, had, had medical experiments done on them in China uh, by the Japanese and, um, you know, Korean War, POWs, um, obviously a lot Vietnam. And I've heard all the stories and I just became so saddened but I really began to recognize and understand us as soldiers and sailors and airmen and marines and coast guardsmen and women and understand what we do you know the drums start to roll the the parades start and the clarion call goes out oh we've got to do this we've got to do that especially uh for the uh Spanish American war you know and um and we and we meet the challenge. We young people meet the challenge. You know, we get propagandized in some cases, and we meet the challenge. Right, and that's an important part of your book too. Is this propaganda component right? You mentioned Bernays, and how they the, some of these racketeers racketeerists are not just making money from the war, but they're involved in the media to facilitate that, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, William, I think one of the most egregious examples of this um, propaganda and, and publicity relates to uh, this uh, publishing and printing war that existed between the two major newspapers in New York City to drum up interest in, in invading Cuba. And they were selling a bunch of newspapers by fanning the flames of the fire for the fight. 
And um, that had a lot to do there. And then you've had the Tavistock Institute, as it turns out, in Great Britain. And this fellow Bernays, Edward Bernays, who, by the way, was the nephew of this uh, 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 Freud. 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 Yeah, the, the psychiatrist, you know, in Switzerland or wherever he was. Um, uh, they they have a well, the, the elitists and the powers that be have a well-defined plan to change attitudes of the masses so that we will do their bidding. And that is what has often happened, especially in modern day with print and the media, and especially today with the media all over the place, you know, watching, hearing, um, experiencing. I mean, it's just overwhelmingly all pervading as far as the propaganda that's used to do certain things for, uh, you know, to the people and bring them along. Right. You can see that in Ukraine, probably Iraq wars, another good example. So it went all the way back to the Spanish American war. I think it was the blowing up of, or the explosion of that one ship right in the Harbor that set off the, really the Spanish American war. And you kind of have a very, uh, you are almost kind of like a military historian too. Like you've been to the sites of the civil war revolutionary war, right? Yeah. Well, um, I've always loved history, William. I, uh, when I was in elementary school, there was a set of books in my elementary school library in, in Tokyo, Japan, that it was orange covered. I still remember orange covered books about one inch, three quarters of an inch thick. And they were about famous Americans. I read them all, man. I'd get it. And a week later, I'd read one. I'd take it back, get another one. So I read all these stories about great Americans. And so uh, that's where I began to study the history of the United States of America. And I've just been fascinated by what three million colonists accomplished against the great empire of the United Kingdom and Great Britain and what we accomplished to, to derive our freedom and to think about these great documents uh, that I've studied about Americanism. I mean, the, the Mayflower Compact, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the second inaugural address of, of, of Lincoln, um, you know, the start, the, the phraseology and the words of the Star Spangled Banner. And as I've mentioned, I was at Fort McHenry and, you know, they have this little room where you have your introduction. And then at the end, all, they began playing the Star Spangled Banner. All of a sudden, the curtain on the right goes back and you see our flag flying there. And that flag never was taken down to my understanding uh, when Fort McHenry was was fired on. Now, the commanding officer of Fort McHenry was a West Point graduate. You know, we started graduating our people in the early 1800s. And apparently he he died uh, of, of the, the issues and the results of his post-traumatic stress that he went through in that bombardment. You can just imagine how tough and hard and hor- horrifying it was for our people. Right. So, yeah, so that history goes all the way back. You have family involved or family back at the Revolutionary War to the present. Yeah, I but, had two. Uh, yeah, excuse me. Go ahead. I had two, two, two ancestors that served as enlisted people uh, at the Battle of Utah Springs and uh, Yorktown. Oh, wow. Yeah, so Yorktown was where it all ended, right? So that was correct. Yeah, yeah. One of them got in toward the tail end of the war. But I mean, those. I mean, you even note in your book there was profiteering back then. Even in Civil War, there were whole whole fortunes made from outfitting the troops and uh, ammunition, etc. Right? Yeah, weaponry, sales of weaponry, and um, there was one contract that that um, supplied. I think it was 4,000 defective weapons, defective weapons that blew up with our troops, you know, and, um, and these arms merchants, I mean, through history, um, it may not happen today, but through history, an example has been, they sold to both sides in the European wars. And, um, you know, it's it just been horrifying to think of the money that's been made, the DuPont company. The DuPont Company, you know, gunpowder company, those people, the family originally came from France. Uh, they, they, they had a good operation going and set up in Delaware, but they made a lot of money. I mean, they would sell, they would sell a gunpowder uh, for 33 cents, whatever. And it, it cost them eight cents. I mean, unconscionable profits. And, you know, all these, all these 
um, stories we hear about how much this costs the government, you know, the lack of accountability. And I'm telling you, this Ukrainian war, major issue is the lack of accountability for our weapons and for uh, the things that we're sending over and the money we're sending over there. I understand we sent some money over to take care of the pensions for the Ukrainian people. My gosh, here we are with our people starving, our homeless people, everything, all these needs in our own United States. It's it's not in the self-interest of the United States to be spending all that money there rather than here, in my opinion. I agree with you. Yeah, no, it's I mean, that accountability and that, that kind of uh, environment is actually drummed up. Like, this is an emergency. We got to spend all this money uh, for this war or else we're going to be in trouble. So that allows this kind of mass profiteering. We saw that in Iraq war and, and probably Ukraine. You don't know where that money's going. Just like you said, who's where's the kickbacks and yeah. well, look, look, what, what, look at Afghanistan, that debacle, the worst debacle in American military history with the way that withdrawal was unorganized. And we leave 85 billion worth of military equipment there. What I would have ordered is that I would have had a thermite grenade submit a huge supply of them in every helicopter, every truck, every airplane, whatever, every large weapon, put a thermite grenade in there, set it off, blow everything up so nobody could use that after we left. We weren't going to get it back. Nobody should be able to use it. I'm sure that the uh, Taliban is selling it to other countries. Heck, Russia may be using it in, um, in Ukraine. Who knows? It's unbelievable that they left all that stuff there, that they they could have just been transporting it out for a month beforehand. It's just a total, it's just total corruption and uh, incompetence. It's really unbelievable. Yeah, well, the, the, the withdrawal, uh, there was no withdrawal plan. It would just get the heck out of there fast, you know, and unorganized. And, you know, those horrible pictures of people trying to get the heck out of there, hanging on to the wheels of the planes, which is the same thing in Vietnam. You know, the same thing happened in Vietnam as as the communists came down. You know, we had a peace treaty signed in uh, 1973. It didn't matter to communists. You can trust a communist to be a communist, as Reagan said one time. You can trust them to be a communist. And that leads to an issue today, which I think is very important. Leftist liberals and what they're trying to do in our country leads to uh, leads to a slow creep like the Chinese water torture to socialism, which sounds good that the people are going to be taken care of and we're going to take care of everybody. And then you get communism. I remember when I was a cadet at West Point, I got a book in the library there called The Classless Society. I can't remember the author's first name. I've looked for the book. I lost it through the years. Djilas, I think was his last name, D-J-I-L-A-S. Russian wrote, he says, you know, they're talking about the classless society, but the class, the elitists, the ruling elites of communism, they had their dashes in the country, you know, and they had their big apartments. And then the common people, they had three families living in a three bedroom, maybe one bedroom apartment in Moscow, you know, and the peasants do the same thing they've done for hundreds of years, being taken advantage of by the class, the classes. Uh, Boy, you really got me into some subjects you can tell I'm very emotional about. No, but it's so important because that's like the promise is like, oh, we're all going to be equal. And there's always the iron law of our oligarchy always happens. People at the top are living. They don't even tell it. Maybe you can read that one quote we were talking about in the pre-show from Gates about the attitude of the elites all over. I think this attitude of Frederick T. Gates is the attitude of all these elites towards, and this is the theme of your book, towards the kind of little common people. That's page 174. 174, yeah. yeah. It starts oh, with yeah. In Our Dreams. Oh, it's oh, an amazing means. statement because the Rockefeller Foundation is still influential in the United States. Oh, yeah. We can talk about that, too. And all over the world. Yeah. Okay. 174, right? Yeah, 174. Um, in Our Dreams, we have limitless resources. Yeah. Let me see here. 174. But, I mean, I think that's another thing we can talk about, too, is the role of these, uh, you know, you have this whole section in your book about... You know, the elitist Rockefellers, Morgans, Rothschilds, they're still around. They're still kind of influenced. I mean, a lot of these guys, like even the guy in France uh, is like a, Ro- a Rothschild stooge. 
Macron. You know, oh, so oh yeah, these yeah. bankers are still kind of running, you know, running yeah. things behind the yeah. scenes. I think the Rockefellers really have been running the country. Oh, they have yeah. their, their own politicians. You know, it's kind of an amazing confluence, which isn't in the book, William. But this is, I was at Exeter Academy, and you know, you, you sit in the dining room at tables. I think about eight eight students at a table, six or eight. I was at a table and my next table over in my dining room, uh, Rockefeller's son. He was a first senior one year ahead of me. Two tables over was the Lawrence Rockefeller son. Wow. In my dining room. And then you hear all these stories. Of course, Lawrence became pretty much a philanthropist. Um, and uh, I'm, he was a culture that. creator. Lawrence Rockefeller. There was David and uh, Nelson. Yeah. Lawrence was a much more pivotal pe- person than people think. He yeah. bankrolled so much of the kind of new age people yeah. that people would be shocked. He's bankrolled Esalen Institute. He's bankrolled John Mack. He's put, he's put money uh, all over the place. That did this kind of. Yeah, non-Christian Lawrence. culture creation. Uh, yeah, really, you're talking really Lawrence. You're talking Lawrence, right? Lawrence, that's correct. So, it, right, right, the yeah. five brothers, yeah. right? Well, it was his. It was his son right. in fifty-eight, fifty-nine. That was at the table, couple tables over in our dining room. Um, back to this Reverend Frederick T. Gates. That really bothered me. He was recruited from the American Baptist Education Society. He wrote a paper in a occasional paper number one titled "The Country School of Tomorrow." And this sets the groundwork for the exact horrific attitude of these elitists, uh, which set the groundwork for the attitude towards us peasants, as I say, by John D. and his elitist compatriots. In our dreams, we have limitless resources, and the people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hands. The present educational conventions fade from our minds, and unhampered by tradition, we work our own goodwill upon a grateful and responsive rural folk. Now, that's a pretty s- strong statement of uh, of um, grateful. How does he know that they're great? I doubt that they're very grateful out there with what they try to do. We shall not try to make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learning or men of science. We are not to raise up from among them authors, editors, poets, or men of letters. I mean, what is the, what? It, what did Christ? What did Christ bring to the world? We are equal. Our Declaration of Independence. We are equal. This guy, as far as I'm concerned, it's almost treasonous. But the worst part about it is. Ten years after he wrote it, those servile people uh, on the farms and uh, around the country, they are the ones that could not become authors or poets or, or high-level people economically, but they were the ones that went and entered the call and went into the military and were gassed and died in those horrible trench warfare in World War One. It's incredible. Was he say we are not to raise from us among them authors, poets, men of letters. We shall not search for embroil great artists, painters, or musicians. So they're just saying you're just going to stay the way you are. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the yeah. Rockefeller attitude, right? Like yeah, yeah just keep just keep tilling tilling on the farms, you know. And those are the people who went out and fought Vietnam. I think the majority were from small towns. They weren't. Oh like yeah, kind of grunge. Sure. Well, you know, let me tell you something. What I've learned, and it's not necessarily my book because it's recent information, William. But um, I have um, an acquaintance of mine who uh, knew a professor of philosophy, probably at a higher, at an institute of higher education in the United States, and he said that professor uh, at a college said, you know. People like me that are teaching today, and this was maybe 20, 30 years ago, we are the hippies of the 60s. We're the ones that kept getting higher education degrees, stayed in college, stayed in universities so that we would avoid the draft. That's the way they avoided the draft. And he says, we got into the education system and we're the ones that trained your students of today. And that really boiled me. You know what I mean? It boiled me to think here I am with my classmates from West Point, 20 out of 504 killed in action and accidents or enemy fire in Vietnam, plus all the other 
58,000 that we that died over there so that these people could avoid the war, go into the colleges, and they're a lot, they're leftist, liberal, social, um, sexual revolution type people. They're the ones that set the groundwork for the current education system today. Vietnam was period, the 60s was what it was all about. No, it's incredible. So they're the ones, they didn't go to war, they're the ones teaching the kids. It's incredible. Yeah, well, they're the ones who began. Yeah, well, let's see. see, Yeah, see, I'm 81. I'm 81 in a few weeks. So it means that they're all, you know, supposedly retired, unless they're tenured and still hanging around, you know. Um, But even even if they retired 10, 20 years ago, William, as you well know, and we know this is what happens in United in the United States government agencies. What happens, and I read a, saw a study one time, saw a documentary one time, somebody theorized that there are really sociopaths in a lot of elements of American government today. Now, a sociopath basically defined is someone who knows the difference between good and evil, but will choose the evil and the wrong thing. Now, think about a sociopath in, in an institution, in maybe a, a corporation or maybe a government agency. When they start to bring up and mentor people, they are going to find the same kind of people. They are going to pick in the lower ranks the sociopaths that they identify, and they're going to bring them up. They are going to be their replacements. They are going to be their staff. They are going to do be the people that do their bidding and that is why it's a spiritual uh, it's a spiritual battle that we're in in the institutions and in society spiritual battle of the bad people that are directed and i talk about uh, sheep and wolves uh, i talk about um serpents you know three different types of people out there in the world and you know the majority of us sheep are the people that go to war and then the wolves out there make the money and the serpents are all behind it wow no it's right and that's how why some of these some of these institutions are have such strange policies is because these guys have burrowed in there it's like a communist thing it's gramsci where like you you it's a battle through the institutions that's why so many of these kind of institutions in the u.s are corrupt it's because yeah, well, of what's been going on for generations, like a couple of generations. Yeah. Well, what I pointed out there is in, in the section, um, in those beginning sections, the cupidity sections and so forth. You know, there was a, a, a fellow named Dahl, D-A-L-L, that was the son-in-law of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And uh, even when he and Anna Roosevelt, the only daughter of the, of the Roosevelts, uh, divorced in 1934. Five, he was still welcome at the White House, and he was very cognizant and observant of communist visitors at the White House during the tenure of uh, Roosevelt. He was also very, very plugged into really the elitist because he he'd been working on on Wall Street. Um, he had um, he, he just knew a lot about. The, the power structures of America. And he said, you know, some of these institutions, and I just have to say it out loud, Council on Foreign Relations, man. I mean, they work the deal. They have these little local affiliates all over the country that are basically training grounds for finding people around the country that would be good additions to the national 3,000 or so membership. It's nice to have that on your resume, you know, and just within that organization, they they pick people and place them in, in positions in the federal government so they can get policies done. If they want some, oh, who do we know over at AG? Who do we know over at HHS? Who do we know over at DOD? This is what we want done. Get hold of them. You know, they were uh, they're inactive members of, of the organization, but let's get to them. That's how the game is played, man. It's an influenced operation. Right. And Dahl, what, his book was FDR my exploited father-in-law, right? Correct. That was, kind of, Correct. That was the name of the book, yeah. yeah. That was well, one I hadn't heard of before, yeah. Amazing guy. And let me, he's, there's some incredible references by by those that I discovered. He wrote his own book, you know. I, yeah, I bought his book. <laughs> one of the books that I bought, I had to have it firsthand, you know. Wow, interesting. I mean, and he says that like sinister forces were manipulating him. Like he kind of had a conspirator's view of history, much like Coleman, right? 
Oh yeah. 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 You know, John Coleman, I bought all of his books. You know, I told you, I actually talked to him on the phone years ago. He's the one that put me onto oil deposits offshore Vietnam. And, um, that's where I first got the picture that maybe there was a long-term plan to, uh, to get Vietnam and, um, you know, to go in and to get power there. You know, one of the, and, and, you know, you know, I stopped with the banana wars and I was going to do another book or two on, you know, the 1900s and current wars, but, um, I got tired, William, I got tired. It is just such, so demanding, as you well know, as a successful author to do your research, sit down, get her done, get it edited, get it, uh, self-published or whatever you, whatever you're going to do. And I just got tired, but, um, I found out so many things, you know, that I could have written about my own war, Vietnam. One time, Bill Moyers, who was the, uh, a high level staffer from Texas on, um, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson's presidential staff walked into my office uh, back in the 70s when I was in the investments business at a bank here in Dallas. And I mean, it happened to be a day when my legs were sore and I was in a wheelchair. So here, here the guy that was at the other end of the pipeline, as I call it, you know, in the White House when I was out on the front lines, walks in and obviously sees me in a chair. I says, I got to tell you right now, I, I need to know, right, why didn't we win that war? Man, he just like almost jumped back. You know, I mean, he was so kind of like, wow, this is a pretty, pretty open way to start a conversation. And he said, well, you know, one of the I said, why didn't we mine Haiphong Harbor earlier? Why didn't we send troops into North Vietnam? Why didn't we buy bomb the rice paddies? You know, the, 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 the rivers and the flood have caused floods. You know, and that would have saved a lot of us, gotten the war over a lot faster. It wouldn't have been one of those other endless wars like Afghanistan and Iraq. And he said, well, we were concerned in the 60s about international public opinion. And I said, you know, I think to myself, who the heck cares about international public opinion when we got our men and women out there fighting for this country, what we presume to be the national interest of the United States, which there are elements of, of, of validity to that for Southeast Asia and Vietnam, especially. But, you know, China and Russia were, uh, were having border warfare back in the 60s uh, up on the up near Mongolia or wherever is up in that area. So he said that was one of the major reasons. He said, you know, um, and, you know, Sweden was involved as as a neutral country and carrying messages back and forth between mm -hmm. us. But, but there were a lot of machinations. You know, I had a uh, had a story about that Sante raid in 1970 when we trained um, a special forces operation to go in to uh, release the prisoners. And um, we found out they'd been moved two or three days earlier from this POW camp that we attacked. Our helicopters took our teams into the wrong site. And I've never been able to find out. They said there were people there that, that I guess they were sworn to secrecy, probably Russians or, or Chinese at another site nearby. Okay. But they got to the actual POW camp, no prisoners there. You know, that shows you how secrecy is invalid. Sieves for uh, for intelligence operations. There were spies all over uh, the the government in South Vietnam. North North communist communists infiltrated spies in that government there, which was infiltrated, made a lot of money off drugs, which really burned me up. I've gone into subjects that, that are not in this book, but they're conversations about history. Right. But that was kind of one of the, you want to talk about a theme about bloodied money. That was another theme in Southeast Asia was the drug trade, right? Oh was yeah. Component. I think that's McCoy's book. Uh, which one? Uh, McCoy. Was it, was it McCoy? McCoy. It was called uh, The Drug Trade in Southeast Asia. Yeah, yeah. I've got several books on that. I've got one called Opium, A History by Martin Booth. Uh, I've got several books that I would have gotten to if I'd ever uh, decided to do another book, William, but I got burned out, you know. Uh, yeah, there's there was a lot of, and, and there's a lot of money being made off that. I mean, my goodness gracious, think about what these uh, uh gangsters south of the border making off number one paying people to get across the border just to get across and then to get payoffs um, back through 
trafficking, making money off trafficking to pay them back, much less the um, the, the the red China uh, fentanyl ingredients coming to factories in Mexico, being produced, being taken across our border. What in the heck is going on, man? That's what crazy. in the heck is going on? I mean, it's treasonous. It's it treasonous. is treasonous. Yeah, it's really crazy. I mean, the government, this government doesn't, it's hard to say, but I don't think my this administration actually represents the American people. It's really hard to believe it, but it's like taxation without representation. Well, uh, the book I was talking about, just one sec, The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've got, I've got that. Yeah, I've got it. Yeah, so, I mean, that was another component of this Vietnam, but also another component of these wars. I think Afghanistan, too, the Taliban was shutting down heroin, and the U.S. comes in, and then the heroin starts getting produced again. Oh, so. yeah, yeah. And we, we, we let the poppy fields uh, continue to produce while we're there with our troops on the battlefield. You know, I um, for years, William, I went to large all the large military army bases where they had what was set up wounded transition battalions so they bring in the wounded they bring in the sick to get them transitioned either well to go back to the military or back into civilian life and released and i talked to a navy md one time that had been in a certain area in afghanistan with the reserves and what he said was he talked to the tribal chief the tribal chief told him that he had sold the mineral rights in the underground of his tribal area to the Chinese. And I said, here we are with our rules of engagement where we can't do certain things. And the, the gentleman that wrote my foreword, um, uh, Alan West, former congressman, is a classic example of rules of engagement, you know, that we can't do. And here we are, our blood, sweat, and tears and then if the Chinese come in, they won't have the rules of engagement that we have. They'll just massacre, kill, and eliminate anybody that gets in their way. But they're making the money off Afghanistan, especially what the lithium, I think it is, the lithium deposits, mercury, whatever it is there. You know, it's just all these things. I just And, and these other people, and this, this one half of 1%. And, and, you know, as I write in my book, uh, that Rathenau in 1922 says about 300 people uh, in Europe all know each other, but they're the ones that are behind the scenes. And after he wrote that, you know, he was assassinated six months later. Right. <laughs> probably probably termed suicide, probably termed suicide, you know. And, well, I mean, and you, I, mentioned, you mentioned all those groups that are real groups, the Bilderberg groups and uh, Committee of 300. You talk, you know, these are all real in the bank of uh, settlements in Switzerland. Oh. Yeah, the the thing about that that I that I'm not sure I don't think I put it here, but but I read a story that in 1943, in Basel at the Bank for International Settlements, there was a contact made by a, a Nazi in the banking industry, probably one of those high level Hitler people, and they were trying to decide what they were going to do with the the approximate 350 million dollars worth maybe gold that was in the bank for international settlements vaults in Basel, Switzerland. Here I said, and that's the exact same time that we were going into Italy and our troops were dying on the beaches at Anzio. Wow. And the Nazis are concerned about what uh, they're going to do with the gold after the war. Well, we know what they did with the gold after the war. They supported their Nazi rat lines coming out of Europe into South America and setting up their regimes again. And maybe somewhat with the, with the paperclip people that came into the United States, whose records and personnel files were sanitized, William, to get them into the United States. And that book that I have is, well, it's called The Tower of Basel is one of them. And then, um, let me see. Oh, I don't know. I got so many books up here. I yeah, Werner Von Braun was living in like a Nazi concentration camp. Like people were getting murdered and they just sponged his record and brought him on to the whole U.S. NASA thing. It's incredible. Yeah. I think by the end of the, uh, by the, the end of his life, you know, he, he reputedly um, maybe became a Christian, William, I understand. And he probably was very saddened for what he had been a part of. And, you know, he talked about there having to be a constant enemy. And, you know, we, we've always conjured up or developed or had the propaganda for, for the Hun 
in World War One, or or the the Japs or the uh, Nazis, and then you know the communists, and then the the terrorists, and maybe it's the aliens today, you know, in current society. I mean, but there has to be an enemy because if there isn't an enemy, then you don't need all your weaponry, and you don't need all your all your law enforcement. You don't need everything that the countries build up especially us, to be ready for the next big fight. So true. I mean, the whole Department of Defense wouldn't exist if there wasn't an enemy to go hit with a hammer, right? So that's a huge industry that has to be supported. Well, we need to support it for the common defense, let's face it. You know, but the common defense has been extrapolated (laughs) worldwide. (laughs) Yeah, common defense of all these other countries that, you know, and you know, I mean, you can talk about all that stuff. The Dulles brothers, you mentioned them in this oh. book, and uh, Sullivan yeah. and Cromwell. Oh my God! How they're involved? They're like Nazi, like uh, I think, like sympathizers or something. Yeah, like they're well, associated with Galen and things like that. Yeah. Too. Well, 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 Cromwell, uh, who 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 left the United States after the Panama Canal, you know, after the Revolution in Panama, he's the one that put that thing together. You know, Panama was a province of Colombia. But, you know, we took that over so that we could build the canal there so we could have an entryway and a faster way to get to the Pacific where we needed to have the markets because we'd been overproducing in the 1890s. We did not have our industrial revolution was producing goods to such a degree that there were not enough purchasers and consumers in the United States proper. So we needed the Asian markets. We needed the resources in Cuba. We needed the resources in the Philippines. So that was all part of that operation. Cromwell was a major part of what happened in Panama. And he apparently went and lived in Paris the rest of his life. But Mm -hmm. Sullivan Cromwell Law Firm was a very, very powerful Wall Street-based law firm that both the Dulleses were were, uh, members of. And they had contacts and they were the ones who were contacted uh, if a bank started to get in trouble or investors got in trouble with their sugarcane fields down in Cuba. They needed to be protected. Those are the guys they went to. And they, they were interlocked with the government. They had power with the government. Yeah, incredible. And made decisions independently, too. I think uh, John Foster did. Yeah. Just like bossed it. Like, uh, yeah, but all part of the inner I mean, that's a huge Rockefeller bank. And McCloy was on there, too, if I remember correctly. So, yeah, well, you know, and that rock, speaking of Rockefeller Bank, the Chase Manhattan, you know, they, they stayed open during World War II. They were the bank of choice for the Nazis. They stayed on, they stayed uh, open in France, in Paris during World mm-hmm. War II. Bingo. It's so strange, like what they were up to, the Dulles brothers. I mean, uh, but that just shows kind of like them making decisions and the peasants. And you want to talk about American overthrow. The the Panama Canal is a good example of that happening pre-World War II and one, right? So that was kind of... Yeah, that's 1902, 1903 when when that happened. Of course, we we were able to do the Panama Canal instead of the one in Nicaragua. You know, there was originally a plan for Nicaragua, but they had a volcano... Uh, go off there so people move to Panama and you know Theodore Roosevelt had a lot to do with that speaking of Theodore Roosevelt um, I've always had a great positive impression of him him William but uh, I lead off my uh, chapter about um, the um, uh, wars down in Latin America with a comment that I found on a book that I of course went and bought because I wanted the the original source but he wrote somebody says you know uh, we need to be able to um, I've got to read this Uh, you know this is this is uh, that's uh, what chapter 18 banker oil you're you're amazing you're amazing you took notes (laughs) yeah you take yeah you take notes I don't know I don't know what's on your book I read it go get it yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, it talks about it talks about Theodore Roosevelt before the war. You know, it, it would be good practice, practice for our army and navy. You know, and uh, I said practice. Who the heck cares about practice? You know, but uh, anyway, all these things. You know, he was a opportunist. Obviously, he was an elitist. Um, you know, he was a always considered to be you know um you know about carry a whatever the thing he said about being strong 
calmly and carry a big stick. Yeah, you know? right. Yeah, you know, and so he got a lot of attention for that. But you know, he he made his name at the Battle of San Juan Hill, which is re really another hill instead of San Juan's Hill, historically. Right. Like that's how that was kind of his reputation was kind of like a swashbuckler type guy, at least. Yeah, but yeah, he was an interesting character. He wrote a really good book on the War of 1812. I think it's still referenced. Well, really? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah I, 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 he wrote a two book, two volume history, if I remember correctly. Where, where we started to get influenced militarily in the Philippines, and I write about this in the book, is that um, he, uh, the Secretary of the Navy, was out for a while. He was Assistant Secretary of the Navy under his um, being under Secretary of the Navy, but having um, power and influence and authority he ordered admiral dewey to go from yokohama with the american fleet down to manila bay and so they were there positioned relative to do their part in the philippine operation of the spanish-american war right because that was a component of it right it's taking yeah. over the old spanish colonies yeah. oh yeah yeah, so the U.S. has always made money. They've sent the little guy out to fight and die, and they've uh, taken the benefit out of it all the way up to the present, probably. I mean, there's a lot of history in this book. You've done a ton of research. I mean, we are at the 55-minute uh, mark here, Alan. How oh, okay. would you like to kind of wrap it up? I mean, I feel like we've covered a lot of stuff. There's a lot more in the book. I think people should check it out. But where's well, uh, how do you anything I missed or anything you'd like to uh, finish? No, no, uh, I appreciate the opportunity very much, William, and letting me uh, talk about everything that's been on my heart and my soul and has been on ever since I've been a warrior. Uh, not really a warrior, but wounded in combat, you know, operations and barely live by the grace of God. But I, 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 I have a speech, by the way, on the John F. Kennedy assassination, and I bring all this is the 60th anniversary. I have a speech that I present on that, and I've presented a few times. And, uh, you know, it all comes to that ultimate eternal struggle of good versus evil and God versus the devil. And, uh, you know, they're the there's the, the sheep out there, and then there's the second group, the wolves that make money off the sheep. But then there's the serpents that are those sociopaths out there that just as long as they increase their bank accounts. And I've been very cognizant and aware of that. And uh, Linda, my wife, and I prayed this morning about at this age of our life, uh, late 80s, that we would have a chance for the rest of our life to be able to be used by the Lord to um, to propagate the faith, because that's the only hope for mankind is for more and more people through a revival, especially in the United States where we are now, to come to know Jesus as the Christ and to believe in him and to have changed lives, get past the past and to have changed lives to be good and kind to others and compassionate for those in need and to really analyze and open our minds and our hearts and our eyes instead of the stupid things we pay attention to, these 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 um, idols that we have in society and everyday life that just don't matter. Pay attention to what our kids are being taught and exposed to in our schools and our local level. Get with the program, you know. We had local elections here, 10% voted in the local elections for crying out loud. It's horrible. So the, the, the whole bottom line is come to know Jesus as the Christ, know who he was, know he will save your life for eternity. Look at the near-death experiences on YouTube. You will see there is an afterlife, and that is there for us for the, for the choosing. We will not be forced. It is a choice that we can make, and, and that's what I would leave people with. Excellent. Well, thanks for the summation. And where's the best place for people to get soldiers' blood and bloodied money? Well, it, it's self-published by Kindle Direct Publishing. The only, well, I don't know if it can order it in bookstores, but basically it's an Amazon um, published book. And so it can be ordered on Amazon site for sure. Um, do you sell it from your website? Uh, no, I don't do that. You know, uh, I've never gotten that sophisticated, William. Uh, I have books in my personal inventory. I go to speeches and I sell it and autograph it. But, you know, I, I've never set that up. Um, the uh, What do you call that where you... Um, you can sell it through, like, I, I think the more modern websites will have a kind of, a, you know, what you call store function or something like that. So you can sell it. That's yeah. what I've done. Yeah. And you can order those books through Amazon. You can just order the yeah. wholesale 
surprised. Yeah, well, well, I will point out to your listeners and your watchers that you have a lot of very interesting books on your site. I was taking a look at those. I'm probably going to order a couple of those myself um, the next few days. So people out there, you, you have some tremendous books, but thank you for the I'll send, opportunity. I'll send you some. I'll be happy to send you some. And so you have three books. You can see them on Amazon. And then the best way to contact you, Alan, is through your website. Yeah. You have multiple websites, right? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, it's combatfaith.com is my stories of healing from uh, warriors with post-traumatic stress. Combatfaith.blogspot.com is my expression in 117 messages of my spiritual faith and my observations about the world and about what's going on. So it's kind of updated, but you know, I'll leave if anybody cared enough to email me, you know, I'll give you my email, Alan B. Clark at AOL.com. You know, if you, if it, it becomes spam to me, you're, you're off, off the list, but I'll be glad to answer any questions or anything by all means. And thank you for the opportunity. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for sharing and a great book. Congrats on the book. Again, the title of the book is, Soldiers' Blood and Bloodied Money, Wars and the Ruling Elites, published 2019 by the Honorable Alan B. Clark. Thanks so much for your time. Okay, thank you, William. All right, stay there. Stay there.